The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 13th chapter. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you can say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The Gospel of the Lord. There's a common theme in our readings for today, and both of them, they both center around a lament. Abram is lamenting over the unfulfilled promise that God had given to him and to Sarah, Sarai at this point, Abram and Sarai, later Abraham and Sarah. They are not yet the father and mother of many nations, but it's unfulfilled at this point. And then in our gospel for today, Jesus is lamenting over the injustice that exists in the very capital city, the very city that was supposed to be the capital of what it looks like to be people under the rule of God. I was talking with um, some people recently about different governmental systems, and I was reminded of something Pastor Bill said to me that kind of surprised me at first but made a lot of sense. He said the best government system in the world is a benevolent dictatorship. The problem is there's no such thing as a benevolent dictator, right? And I don't think of God as a dictator, per, per se. That's kind of a negative word. But, but this is what the people are called to be, to be blessed by God, to be a blessing to the world. And here Jesus laments over the city that's supposed to be the symbol of that. Its name even has that word Salem in it, which is like the word shalom, peace, and wholeness. And yet it's the place where the blood of the prophets is spilled. I want to get back to that lament, but I want to get there by way of talking about why we're here in this Lenten season as we're focused uh, on the cross and as we kind of stand in the shadow of the cross. What does it mean? Have you ever had one of your kids or a kid ask you, I like Jesus. Why did he have to die? Hmm? You get that question? It's a big, big, good question. Well, we often talk about Jesus dying for our sins. In fact, it kind of rolls off our tongues that Jesus died for our sins. And I think so often we think of Jesus dying in our place or dying for what we should have died for, what we were guilty for. He puts himself where we should be, that sort of divine courtroom where we are guilty, but he pays the penalty. Now, none of that is wrong in any way. Of course, that's how we understand who Jesus is for us and for the world, for that matter. It's key to understanding what his death means for us. But do you ever think of Jesus as dying for your pain or the pain of the world? Do we ever think of Jesus dying for our sins in kind of a wider sense of that term? That Jesus dies for all that is broken within us and without us. For all the things and places and people we pray for. Now I want to be really careful with this. 
in putting our pain and the pain of the world in the category of sin, I am not, be clear here, not suggesting that pain is the black and white result of something we have done wrong. Obviously, sometimes we can see that we have caused ourselves or other people pain through our wrongdoing or a lack of doing anything. And obviously, sometimes there are certainly times when other people, by their actions or inactions, cause us pain. But oftentimes, our hurts and that of others is the result of something that just happens. Accidents, illnesses, genetic disorders, disasters, the list kind of goes on. No one is necessarily to blame. I say all that because I'm sensitive to many who have been blamed for their own suffering, told it was their fault, that God was punishing them or God was testing them. Karen and I have a friend who I respect greatly. She's a woman of deep, deep faith. But there was a time when one of her kids was sick and she was kind of blasted out in social media. Does anybody know of something I've done wrong? Does anybody know of a sin that I've committed that might be causing this illness for my child? And I thought, that must be a terrible feeling to think that way. I would certainly be hurt if someone said that to me, having a sick son myself. I can't imagine and I can't reconcile the God I know in Scripture, and especially in these stories, through that particular lens. So I'd like to do away with that (laughs) by having a more expansive view of sin as any brokenness in our connection with God and our connection with the people around us. Anything that squashes our spirit or seeks to steal that deep sense of joy, not just happiness, but joy, that foundation that we have from God of hope. Now, whether or not we can put a culprit to that or or not, I want us to make that view much more expansive. Rolf Jacobson, a, a, a professor at Luther Seminary and a commentator that your pastors often listen to and many around the country, he um, was talking about lament this week, and he said, um, kind of helped me understand it a little more. He said, in lament, we are asking God to be complicit in our problem or in our problems or in the problems of the world. In fact, Dr. Jacobson goes on to say that God actually asks us to do this. This is a faithful practice. Make me a part of the most difficult parts of your life. Call on me, God says. Even, especially in Abram's case here, call me out. I have to say, as I listen to Dr. Jacobson, his understanding of lament seemed to come from more than just a kind of head knowledge. And as he went on in the commentary, uh, I found out that I've only seen his kind of his headshot picture. I've never seen him in person before. But he apparently lost a leg in high school. And then in college, he lost another leg as he was battling with cancer. That was part of the surgery. He came to seminary to be a pastor in a wheelchair without either one of his legs and having barely survived that bout with cancer. I could tell as he was speaking there was something behind him other than just his head. His heart was in it as well. He knew what it was to lament. Well, the pastor who will be here leading our lay school in May, May 18th, I think it is, coming up, was sitting, he comes to the text study that we do, that we pastors do, kind of in conversation about the readings for, the, for that Sunday. 
And we got to talking about lament, and we got to talking about suffering, and, and he, he said for him that beautiful image that Jesus gives us at the end of this lament, this image of protection, of God covering us like a mother hen covers her brood. He said I, he loved that image, and he was, that was what he was going to kind of focus on in his sermon for Sunday. And so um, I said to him, that all sounds great, but let me be the the devil's advocate here. Now that, as I'm told, the devil doesn't actually need an advocate, right? Got plenty of advocates already. But uh, <laughs> I said, well, well what about uh, those who don't feel protected? What about those who are suffering, those who feel vulnerable, those who look at the world and say, how can there be a good and gracious God if the world is like this? And I don't think I'll soon forget his answer. He said something kind of interesting, and I'm paraphrasing it here, but he said, I don't have an answering for all the suffering in the world. But he said to dwell in some logical debate about suffering misses the point. It's not that we can't do that in conversation, but it's not the point here in a sermon on Sunday. People often say they don't believe because there is too much suffering in the world, but suffering shows us the very need for belief. In other words, looking at the world and deciding, oh, it's too broken, it's too evil, it's too violent, it's too selfish, For there to be a God is an increasingly common thing in our culture. It's a common conclusion that I hear all the time. And we can knock ourselves out asking why suffering happens. But maybe, maybe a more helpful exercise is to simply agree that suffering does happen. Duh, how can you disagree with that? And because it does, because it does, we can see the profound need for God and God's profound impact of giving life out of death. And in these stories of lament, one on God's unfulfilled promise and the other on humanity's violence against the, tr- the truth-tellers, ultimately Jesus himself, in those stories we can actually see God and God alone answering the call to engage. Almost anyone will be with you when things are great, right? Yeah, exactly. I'll take that as an amen. <laughs> I heard something about how professional athletes often come to a sense of understanding that people only like them in their uniform, when they're doing well. And when the glory years are there and they're doing great, it seems like the whole world loves them. But once they've kind of hit the downslide, they get hurt, an injury, something like that, maybe they stand up for themselves or they're just aging, all of a sudden that love goes away and there's a real problem with professional athletes and depression because of this. God doesn't do that for us, to us. God sees the worth in us no matter what. When Abram cries out that God, to God, you haven't fulfilled this promise, I don't have an heir as you said I would, God gets very specific on the solution. In fact, God actually expands the promise to Abram And Abram believes. He trusts. He's got a history with God showing up. So God cuts a covenant with Abram. And just a brief explanation of what it means to cut a covenant. I had somebody complain today. They were like, oh, why are there all these stories in the Bible about animals getting sacrificed or cut in half? Well, what happens is the animals are cut. One half is laid on this side. The other is on this side. And then what happens is, say, that we're making some kind of a deal together. We would together 
walk between those animals cut in half to say very clearly, if I violate this contract, this covenant with you, may the same thing happen to me that has happened to these animals. We still say this, you know, cut a contract, cut a deal, all that kind of stuff. It comes from this sense of covenant in the scriptures. But here's what's fascinating. Did you notice in the story that when God cuts a covenant with Abram, Abram falls into a deep sleep. And so when it comes time for that contract to be fulfilled, that covenant to be cut, it is only God in the, in the fire pot and the, and the flame that walks through the cut animals. In other words, what God is saying to Abram is, I will be the one who will be responsible for the fulfillment of this promise. It stands alone with me. I take on the consequences. That's like putting your house up for sale and, and, and finding the person with the worst credit in Kitsap County, right? And then saying to them, hey, I tell you what, let's just leave the banks out of this. Let's leave all the paperwork out of this. Here's what I'm going to sell you my house for. You just pay me every month. I'm, I'm sure you'll do it. It'll be fine, right? We'll just shake hands on it. No witnesses. And if you miss a payment here, there, or everywhere, I'll just pay it for you. How's that sound? Anybody want to do that one with one of their best assets? Probably. You do? Okay. I want to come see you later. <laughs> we wouldn't do that, but that's kind of what God does with Abraham. God says, I will take it on. I will do it. And again, as Jesus stands somewhere outside of Jerusalem, he's on this path to Jerusalem and no one can take it away. No one can dissuade him from where he's going. When he laments their history of death, we know. We know the end of the story. We know Jesus is going to engage. Even with the warning that Herod is out to get him, Jesus will not turn away from what is a fulfillment of that covenant that God cut with Abram. Jesus will be the one, like a hen in a den of foxes. Jesus has this wonderful moment, by the way. I love it. It's kind of, I call it a um, devil went down to Georgia moment, you know? It's like he looks at Herod, through the Pharisees anyway, and says, I done told you once, you son of a gun, right? You go and tell that fox. Jesus isn't always nice. You go and tell that fox for me. I'm doing what God sent me to do, and nothing will get in the way because of my love for you. Even my love for the city that has killed the prophets before me and will take my life as well. There's a famous story, I bet a lot of you have heard of it, of this charred chicken that was found. Right? It was, I think it, was, it went with a Yellowstone fire or something like that. They found this chicken, and this guy was kind of like, oh, that's gross, and he gave it a little kick, and as he kicked the chicken, all these little chicks came out, right, that the mother hen had protected them from the fire. It's a beautiful story. You can share it. You can hold on to it. It's actually not true. Uh, it didn't actually happen in that way, but it's a really cool story, and somebody told me that chickens will do this kind of thing. They will protect their brood. But in the interest of nature stories, there is a spider. I didn't talk about snakes on St. Patrick's Day, but I am going to talk about spiders. There's a spider, and if you know spiders or have seen Charlotte's Web, you know that spiders will hatch their, or they'll lay their eggs and then they'll die, and the young will kind of fend for themselves and fly away and all that kind of stuff. They don't actually talk. That's different in Charlotte's Web. But, but they'll fly off and be on their own. But there's one breed of spider that doesn't do that. It actually lays its eggs and, and puts them on its back. 
And as the little spiderlings hatch, they live on the mother's back, at least for a while. And what's interesting is if, if there's a shortage of food and, it's, and it looks like the spiderlings might die, the mother will actually inject herself with what she puts into flies and bugs and things like that, will inject herself and, and uh, liquefy her own body so that the spiderlings will have something to eat. Somebody was grossed out by that story at the first service. Sorry. But it's kind of a cool image to think about. That's, that's the sense of what Jesus is saying. How long I, I've wanted to gather you and to protect you. And as his arms are spread out like that mother hen, indeed, that is exactly what will happen. I can't explain suffering. But I can lament. God actually calls me to do it when the time comes. I can't promise it will get better. But I can get perspective. I can, know, I can know that God knows suffering inside and out. And that God invites me to, to call on God to be complicit in my pain and in the pain of the world. And here I can promise you, I can promise that God will show up. And in itself, to me at least, that's a relief. But we also know that as suffering continues for us and for the world the wings of our mother God extend not just into the now, but into the eternal future of hope where there will be no more war. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more sickness or hardship or crying or pain. And even if it doesn't work out in the now, God holds us into the depth of eternity. And for us and for the world, it needs to hear this message that is good news. Good news that you have for you and that you carry to a world, a community, a workplace, a school, a friend, a neighbor, in need of hearing that message and being connected to it. Amen.